This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Joining me today with pithy commentary is Dave Green. How are you doing, Dave? Um, fine, Bob. Thanks for asking. <laughs> you betcha. I also want to thank Ellen McHale and John McKeeby at the Schoharie River Center in Burtonville in Schoharie County. Uh, Audrey and I went down there, uh, Dave. It's, it's interesting. Have you ever been to Burtonville? Yes, I believe I have. You have, really? I mean, it's a small town, and it's one of those places, and you run into towns like that. And it's not actually a town. It's a hamlet. But <clears throat> you run into places like that in uh, our part of upstate New York that that community was much bigger in the 1800s than it is now. That That's an interesting note. Yeah, because they would have had some kind of maybe factory there or milling operation, because they're right next to the Schoharie Creek. Um, right. And the creek powered a mill, let's say, and people worked there. But over time, that 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 went away. And now it looks like mainly just people live there, and there are a couple of bridges over the creek. When they have floods along the Schoharie, which actually will be my topic for much of this podcast— uh, they certainly are in, uh, you know, in, in the way, or they often uh, get flooded down in that uh, area. So Ellen McHale and John McKeeby uh, live there and also operate there, the Schoharie River Center. And I was one of the speakers at their Writing the Watershed Literary Festival. The main speaker was a real spellbinder, I would say, the first Hudson River Riverkeeper. Have you ever heard of the river Riverkeeper, Dave? I've heard the term used. I'm not exactly sure what they do. Well, they look out for rivers, uh, you know, to try to keep them from being polluted. And the man who spoke, John Cronin, was the first riverkeeper in the country, and he was hired uh, decades ago to patrol the Hudson River. And uh, I hope to get him on the Historian's Podcast soon. Uh, he can look back on a 45-year career trying to clean the environment, especially interested in the, I guess you'd say, the history of pollution on the Hudson, Mohawk, and other rivers in New York State. Now there's a new river keeper for the Hudson. I think it's the same person who does the uh, Mohawk River. But uh, he told a very interesting story, John Cronin, about the first, um, I don't know what, the first catch of the river keeper when he started the job. He had sort of slid into this. He was from Yonkers, was kind of a street kid, the way he described it, growing up. But he got a job working with Pete Seeger, uh, restoring the sloop Clearwater, which Pete uh, used to try to promote, and to this day it tries to promote uh, cleaning up the Hudson River. So maybe it was sort of a natural that John Cronin became the first river keeper, and they were building him a boat, and I think he's pretty good at, at getting publicity, and you know I admire that, Dave. Yeah, that's, that's your thing, Bob. <laughs> yeah, so he said when they were building the Riverkeeper boat, both CBS and NBC the television networks were covering the story, but they didn't know about each other. <laughs> you know, In other words, CBS called and said, you know, we want to do a story about this, and maybe even explicitly said, you know, you're not going to tell anybody else, are you? Oh, well, you know. <laughs> so he kept having, to, you know, it was like having two girlfriends, you know. I mean, he, <laughs> he was going back and forth with them. But And finally, when the boat launched, I don't know which crew was with him. It was either CBS or NBC. 
I want to say it was CBS. And uh, John Cronin had heard that a big oil tanker was discharging wastewater into the Hudson at some point. So he, with his little riverkeeper boat, comes abreast of this huge oil tanker and raises the captain on the radio and says, you know, captain of the whatever it was, the Palm Beach or something, this is John Cronin, the riverkeeper. And he goes, oh? (laughs) (laughs) But to make a long story short, that little riverkeeper was able to get uh, ExxonMobil penalized for for this practice of of letting uh, their oil tankers discharge wastewater into the Hudson River. So anyhow, that's one of John Cronin's stories. The talk that I uh, gave at the event, uh, the event was about writing the Watershed Literary Festival, was discussing the Mohawk River, which is the river that I grew up on, the Mohawk River uh, Barge Canal is what I grew up on, really. Um, and in recent literature, you know, some of the people that I've met who are from Amsterdam, which is my hometown, uh, have used the river uh, in their various works of, of writing. Uh, one that comes to mind is James Ziskind in his uh, crime novel, Stone Cold Dead, based on a fictional uh, Amsterdam. He has the murderer throwing a body in the river from the Mohawk River Bridge. I don't know if that ever actually happened in Amsterdam, but okay, I remember going downtown and when the river bridge was you know, very much at kind of eye level, you kind of thought... You thought of that, you know, it's, it's like a, it's how people dispose of bodies sometimes. Uh, the author Jim Labatt, who's from Amsterdam, uses the river as the theme in one of his books, which is called Things I Threw in the River. And Dan Weaver, who owns the bookstore in Amsterdam, the Bookhound, called the Mohawk, his Mohawk Valley Literary Journal upstream. Now, in Amsterdam, when I grew up, or where I grew up, I should say, people at first lived along the river, or they lived along the creeks. And Amsterdam has uh, three creeks, the North Chuktanunda, the South Chuktanunda, and the Dove Creek. The main creek, I would say, is the North Chuktanunda. It's often just called the Chuktanunda to be a little confusing. The creeks and the river served industry in the late 1800s and much of the 1900s, and the North Chuctanunda Creek in particular became an industrial sewer. Many things were thrown in that creek, chemicals and the like, you know, from the, not the carpet mills and other mills that are, were kind of uh, along the way. But that, the, the carpet mills were the dominant industry, and they dumped carpet dye in the creek, which make it, made it run in different colors. You know, which could sound like it almost was attractive. Uh, in fact, in winter, a uh, late friend of mine, Anthony Judge Carasone, Judge was a nickname, he was basically a, a teacher, but uh, Judge Carasone used to say the Chuctanunda Creek in winter was like Spumoni ice cream. I knew the word Spumoni was going to come up. Huh? <laughs> right, because the creek the ice would freeze in different layers of different colors, you know, brown. No, this is not a pretty thing. No, it wasn't pretty. Uh, in the winter, that, that was happening in the winter, and in the summer, the creek and the river smelled, but I think the creek smelled worse. It's only getting worse. Yeah. Uh, and I remember there was one bridge over the creek in downtown Amsterdam on Grove Street where you, you'd walk across the 
the bridge and it would be a, a specific and disgusting smell. And, and, you know, I can remember the smell. What was it? Well, I don't, I don't know. I just, I'd have to rem, you know, have in the presence of it again and say, yeah, that was it. You know, Any it, terms we can use here on the radio? I don't know. It, it, well, it wasn't like excrement. It was sort of chemical and I don't know. It kind of just came, kind of gave, even though Undes- you weren't. Undescribable. Yeah. It almost gave you a bad taste in your mouth. Oh, you know? good. All yeah. right. Um, and one um, sad thing about this, I mentioned this, is when my dad was ill and he was up in the nursing home, he used to kind of threaten to, he was going to go to the river and jump in, which he had done when he was a young man. Because, as I said, the people at first lived by the river and the creeks, and um, my father and his family lived on Eagle Street, where Kirk Douglas also lived. And But when you got some money in general, I mean, that wasn't always true, in Amsterdam, you wanted to move up the hill because you kind of got away from the smell. I remember... But my five minutes that I once had a conversation with Kirk Douglas, the famous actor who came from Amsterdam, you know, it's always confusing, you know, because I tell people that my father was born on Eagle Street. So people think I lived on Eagle Street. So he, Kirk Douglas said something like, do you still live on Eagle Street? I said, well, no, Mr. Douglas, I never lived on Eagle Street. We moved up the hill. Oh, you moved up the hill. Big shots. But he remembered. <laughs> yes, he did. Um, I have this visual, Bob, something like this. So city officials say they're going to drain all the creeks and rivers. Yes. At that point, all you need to do is pay attention to how many homes go up for sale. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Amsterdam was, you know, when I was young, the the rivers and the creeks smelled. But when I was really young, it was a bustling industrial town, but then went through great economic hardship. The one of the sayings there is the mills moved out 50 years ago and nothing good has happened since. But one thing that has happened that I have to say in on balance is a better thing is the creek doesn't smell as much as it did. That's an improvement. Yeah, and the river either. I mean, uh, not that they are perfect. Um, I do, do give kudos. In fact, at this conference down in Burtonville, one of the people there was John Naple. I want to credit John and many others who have led cleanups of the Chuckton under Creek uh, that was the one that had the Smoney ice cream and the awful smell. And he then lead, has led tours along the creek, on which I've never gone, Dave. But, I mean, people who are uh, are spry go on such tours. Yeah. yeah. But as I was saying, uh, things are better, but, you know, not perfect. You, you, you hear in the news fairly often, and they often are pinpointing Amsterdam, but other cities— you hear how heavy rain has overwhelmed the water treatment plants in Amsterdam, let's say, or another city. The stormwater and sewage, I, I, maybe I didn't know this, but the, the Riverkeeper guy talked about this. The stormwater and the sewage end up going through the water treatment plant together. So when you have a, all these rains, the, um, the water treatment plant gets overwhelmed and they have to bypass it. And there it goes, just like the old days, sewage and everything. Well, this conversation is only getting better. <laughs> Going into the river. Well, anyway, the, the rivers are probably better than they, than they were. Um, and also at the Schoharie River Center Literary Festival, I read one of my Daily Gazette columns 
on Mohawk River flooding. My column is called Floods Along the Mohawk. The fact that a river and its tributaries run through the Mohawk Valley has been something to be reckoned with. In late June 2013, there were destructive flash floods along the Mohawk during a period of heavy rain. Edith Healy, 86, of Fort Plain, died when her mobile home was carried away by waters of the Atsquago Creek. The body was found in debris that collected at Lock 14 of the Mohawk River Erie Canal. And I remember that story, Dave, in part because, you know, we were broadcasting from the town of Florida, high on the hill in the town of Florida. We were always out of the way of flooding at the radio station we were at. But that flood was so specific to the Fort Plain area and up county, as we used to say, that it almost seemed unbelievable. You know, that something like that had happened up there. Well, if you're one foot above the water line, there was no flood. That's true. That's true. Now, going back from 2013, major flooding in Schoharie and Montgomery counties and all over the Northeast in 2011 during tropical storms Irene and Lee. Uh, A lot of flooding, a lot of damage, and um, I focused in the column on damage to the colonial-era buildings along the Mohawk River in the Amsterdam area, because you figure those buildings have been there a long time, and this was a, you know, these floods were, uh, probably did more damage to those colonial buildings than any flood before that. Uh, The one building in Amsterdam is called Guy Park Manor. It was built by the Johnson family from a man named Guy Johnson. Uh, the, the building survived, but it, good chunks of it were washed away. The Walter Elwood Museum was housed in the structure at the time in 2011, but has relocated to former factory buildings now on Church Street. Old Fort Johnson, we just heard not too long ago on the podcast uh, from Scott Hefner at Old Fort Johnson, built in 1749, was flooded by storms Irene and Lee. After cleanup work, there was a shortened season in 2012, and the old fort was back in operation in 2013. The one Montgomery County fatality in the aftermath of Irene took place in Orysville when raging waters of the Schoharie Creek swept away a pickup truck driven by 72-year-old Stephen Turlecki, who was uh, the owner or one of the owners of Karen's Produce on Route 5S, and alas, Mr. Turlecki was down there trying to check on how his uh, business was doing when his uh, truck was picked up by the waters and, and he died. The floods washed the Schoharie Crossing State Historic Site parking lot away, damaged their visitor center, destroyed interpretive signs. The historic site is focused on the aqueduct that carried the Erie Canal over the Schoharie Creek in the 1800s. But the flooding uncovered the site of a colonial fort, which is located there, called Fort Hunter, which is the name of the hamlet around Schoharie Crossing. Uh, And they never really knew where the uh, fort was located. Now they know. Uh, And it's located in what was the parking lot. Now, uh, another flood we we covered when we were doing radio up in that part of the Mohawk Valley was in 19, I'm sorry, 19, it was 2006. I remember in particular doing, we we did a radiothon, we called it the Floodathon, Dave. I don't remember that. Yeah, we did that. It was on on the weekend. I remember we didn't normally work weekends, but the flood had happened in great damage, especially in Kanjahari, Fort Plain, Fonda, and Fultonville. 
remember uh, we kind of signed on the station. I mean, the station would have been on, but we, you know, we're talking to people and and so forth. Uh, you know, on the weekend, um, it you know it was a, we, you know, we thought that was a real damaging flood, and it was. But uh, then the floods of 2011 and 2013 came along and put the 2006 in perspective. There was a flood in 1996 in Fonda that convinced officials to relocate the county jail. It historically was in the village of Fonda, but it kept getting flooded down there. So they moved the jail uh, to uh, its present spot on higher ground in the town of Glen. Another well-remembered uh, flood in our area, you know, th- that was very specific in its damage, but it was horrific in terms of lives lost, was 1987. The raging waters of the Schoharie Creek took down the Thruway Bridge over the Schoharie, claiming 10 lives. Uh, that was pretty much in the, you know, the general, same general location where Mr. Trelecki died back in the, in the flood of in, uh, 2011. Fort Plains at Squago Creek flooded in 1981, destroying the aqueduct that had carried the Erie Canal over the creek. The spring of 1958 brought major flooding along the Mohawk River, and after that event, the Army Corps of Engineers built retaining walls along the south side of the river in Amsterdam. And I believe this is a true statement. I think those walls have been very good in protecting uh, the south side of Amsterdam from major flooding from the from the Mohawk River. The Mohawk Valley, years ago, hard hit by a flood in February 1938, a winter flood, you know, an unexpected thaw and so forth. A carpet mill on the riverbank in Amsterdam fell into the swollen river after it was battered by ice flows. Amsterdam was then burning, I think they called it coal gas, was stored in a big tank along the river, and that supply of gas for lighting, or or actually probably for more for cooking and other purposes, was cut off because water surrounded the gas house. And this is near what is now Riverlink Park. That was one of the big issues when they made Riverlink Park in Amsterdam. They had to get rid of the, not even sure the gas house was still there, but the pollution that was part of having had the gas house there. Now, about the 1938 flood, Bert DeRose, who's a famous kind of Amsterdam person, was a drama coach, who ended up being high school principal. Uh, Bert was six years old in 1938, and he said his uncles worked for the city and were assigned to bridge duty. And he said, sure enough, the river began to run over its bank. I remember my uncle running to inform us that we had to leave right away. Bert DeRose said when the river finally receded, it left large chunks of ice in his family's backyard. Quote, needless to say, a six-year-old boy spent many a day playing on those chunks of ice. An early March flood in 1913 washed out the bridge at Canajoharie. Amsterdam's Mohawk River Bridge was taken out by high water on, remember the date, March 27, 1913. The temporary bridge that replaced the fallen span was itself demolished by a flood one year to the day later. March 27th became known as Bridge Day in Amsterdam. And a flood in March of 1910 disabled railroad service from Fonda through Herkimer for two days. 
A violent downpour lasted for 26 hours in the Mohawk Valley, according to newspaper accounts in October 1903. Streets and trolley lines were washed out in Amsterdam, and the trolley system powerhouse was flooded in Tribes Hill. We'll have more of this edition of the Historian's Podcast in just a moment. I'm Bob Cudmore with a word about our GoFundMe campaign. We really need your donations to keep us going here and the uh, Historian's Podcast. You can make a donation online by going to GoFundMe.com forward slash Historians 2018. Or make out a check to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. We've been lagging behind in the Historian's Podcast. Won't you please help us out? Thank you. This is Bob Cudmore on the Historian's Podcast. I want to tell you now about an exotic animal farm that was located in Amsterdam, then in Cranesville. This was the subject of a recent a focus on history column in the Daily Gazette about the Gesmo uh, Farm, the Gesmo Animal Farm. The Gesmo Animal Show from Amsterdam was one of the excellent attractions at the Canajahari Citizens Band Carnival in September 1929. The Canajahari Courier wrote the show included a wildcat, eight-month-old lion's cub, parrots, boa constrictors, in other words, more than one, rattlesnakes, monkeys, a baboon, and what the newspaper described as the world's smallest horse standing just 24 inches tall. Where did this come from? The Gesmo Animal Farm from Amsterdam. That's my hometown. Even in uh, 1929, it was uh, an industrial city. Well, the 1930 census reported that the owners of the show, animal trainer Eugene Gazelle, spelled G-E-S-E-L-E, and his wife Ida Gagne Gazelle, were living on Florida Avenue on Amsterdam's south side. He was 31 and apparently had been born in New York City. She was 40. Their farm, their animal farm, was on Broadway, described in an advertisement as on top of Yankee Hill. You're just about out of Amsterdam then, but you're still in the city of Amsterdam. And in 1930, the gazelles advertised wild animals as an attraction for motorists, but also offered white poodle puppies for sale. That continued to be a theme as the years went on for what they were doing with their animal farm. They would show the exotic creatures, but also deal with just dog and cat pets. Late in that year, 1930, a trade publication, The Billboard, reported a leopard was shipped to that farm. The Billboard, by the way, eventually became Billboard uh, and just dealt with the music industry as it does to this day. But uh, back in 1930, it dealt with showbiz in general and uh, a lot of, of, you know, about Uh, um, animal farms or circuses and things of that nature. By early 1932, the gazelles and their animals had moved to Cranesville, a hamlet east of Amsterdam on Route 5. 
Jerry Snyder, one of the founders of Historic Amsterdam League, has been researching the gazelles, but has not yet been able to pinpoint the location of the farm. Fifth graders from East Main Street School in Amsterdam visited the Cranesville farm in 1932. The recorder reported, The beautiful leopard was respectfully admired, but Jane and Sammy, the two marvelous chimpanzees, were the real charmers of the occasion, eating their sliced bananas with a fork and pouring out and drinking their cocoa in mannerly fashion. In December 1932, Gesmo, that's the name of the farm again, run by the gazelles. And by the way, I asked Jerry, uh, we don't know why they named the farm Gesmo as opposed to Gazelle. G-E-S-E-L-E is their name, and we presume that's how it was pronounced, but we don't know. Maybe M-O was a silent partner of some kind. In any event, 1932, the Gesmo chimpanzees were entertaining in the toy department of Whitney's department store in downtown Albany. Also that month, according to the Daily Gazette, chimpanzees Susie and Jenny were displayed at a circus in Schenectady. Newspaper wrote, To see Susie and Jenny wearing clothes, eating, drinking, and smoking in human fashion convinces one that they have little desire to return to their native haunts. In 1933, Gazelle built new outside cages, constructed a large entrance arch, and hired Edward Flanders, an experienced big cat trainer. Eugene Gazelle toured that year. In New England, the act was uh, billed as Gorilla Land and took chimpanzees to the Fond Fair. According to the billboard, the Gizmo Animal Farm in the 1930s was sometimes known as the Gazelle Ape Farm, the Gazelle Lion Farm, and the Gizmo Circus Animal Farm. Gazelle took a lion cub one day to the Amsterdam offices of the Recorder newspaper and got what he was probably looking for, a story in the newspaper. Gazelle also used the name Movie Land's famous animal actors for his business. But Jerry Snyder could not document that Gazelle's animals ever appeared in the movies. In January 1935, Eugene Gazelle was hospitalized for eight weeks after an attack by a large rhesus monkey. The billboard reported he lost the use of his right arm, and I'm not sure that that came back. The zoo was said to have 150 animals at the time, including dogs, ponies, and birds. The facility then boarded cats and dogs. Ida Gazelle, again Eugene Gazelle's wife, was busy with her trained chimps, so I kind of get the impression that maybe she was the one who took care of the chimps. In 1937, the gazelles displayed greyhounds at Larrabee's Hardware Store in Amsterdam. The gazelle's son, Eugene Jr., served in the U.S. Navy in World War II and was missing for two months when his destroyer, Reuben James, was torpedoed before America entered the war while it was on convoy duty in the North Atlantic, October 1941. The son apparently had grown up with his grandmother in New York City. The last city directory listing for the Cranesville Animal Farm was in 1943. Jerry Snyder couldn't find any notice of Eugene Gazelle Sr.'s death 
but presumed he died in the mid-1940s as his wife uh, Ida is listed in an Albany City directory as a widow in 1947. She appears to have moved to Albany that year, and she died in Albany on May 26, 1963. The story of the Gazelle Animal Show, Cranesville, and Amsterdam. I'm Bob Cudmore. Thank you for listening to the Historian's Podcast.